0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. As more data scientists add deep learning to their toolbox, we're beginning to see more tools that target the data scientists directly. So a few weeks ago, I featured a tool called BigDL, which is large-scale distributed deep learning library built on top of Apache Spark, and which is just a Spark library. And in this episode of The Data Show, I will speak with my friend Anima Anankumar uh, about MXNet. So Anima is a professor at UC Irvine. She'll be moving to Caltech in the fall of 2018. But for now, she's a principal research scientist at Amazon. I've long actually been a fan of MXNet, dating back to when it was a research project out of Carnegie Mellon and University of Washington and I wanted to hear Anima's perspective on its recent progress as a framework for enterprises and practicing data scientists. I hope you enjoyed the episode. All right, my guest today is Anima Anand Kumar, who was uh, here on the data show before in one of our more popular episodes. She's one of the leading researchers in the use of tensors uh, for machine learning. Um, So, for now at least, she is a research scientist at Amazon Web Services working on large-scale machine learning. Welcome back to The Data Show, Anima.
1: Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure.
0: So, I want to jump right in because uh, you'll be giving talks at conferences that I organize including Strata San Jose on MXNet, which is a uh, deep learning framework. Most people talk about TensorFlow, but I've long been actually a fan of uh, MXNet, even from the CMU days. So why don't you give our listeners a little bit of uh, background about MXNet?
1: Absolutely. You know, it's a university-driven project, right? An open source project, in fact. Now it's an Apache project that, you know, started out uh, at CMU, at UW, and Now at AWS, it's the package of choice, and we are actively developing and contributing to this open source uh, contribution.
0: For people who are somewhat familiar with deep learning, so there are these famous architectures that came out of paper, you know, like ResNet, Inception. So are these things that are found in MXNet?
1: Absolutely. There is architectures are predefined and uh, optimized to a great degree, In fact, if you see the benchmarks, and I'll be showing them at Strata as well, you get uh, 90% efficiency on multiple GPUs, multiple instances, and uh, these uh, scale up much better than the other packages. And the idea is if we are enabling deep learning on the cloud, uh, efficiency becomes a very important criterion and will result in huge cost savings to the customer. And that's what AWS is focused on. So
0: my understanding is uh, MXNet was, has long, been, always been efficient. Is that correct?
1: Yes, because it's built uh, from the beginning with the viewpoint of being able to have high efficiency and having um, modularity and separation that makes it easier to optimize and improve efficiency
0: so I know that Amazon has this uh, incredible uh, in instances the p2 x, x large <laughs> <laughs> those are insane right so yeah. in, th- in yeah. terms of a uh, number of floating point calculations you can uh, do per second but um
1: in fact, if you look at the numbers right like the benchmarks we ran was on sixteen instances of uh P216x large that's about 1.1 petaflops and if you look at the world's uh, most powerful supercomputer that's 93 petaflops so you can get as close as you want to the world's most powerful computer all with a click of a few uh, you know few clicks you you can get there and that's what aws is focused on in removing the barriers for innovation in machine learning and for doing machine learning at scale so you,
0: we talked about speed, but obviously uh, as deep learning becomes more mainstream and is uh, adopted by non-experts, just regular data scientists, what about ease of use and accessibility?
1: And this is where I see are also the big strengths of uh, MXNet. MXNet uh, is uh, much easier to program in terms of uh, giving user more flexibility. So there are a range of different front-end languages the user can employ and still get the same back-end performance um, because there is an efficient C++ interface between the front-end and the back-end. For instance, in addition to Python, you can code in R, which is a popular language with statisticians. There is uh, JavaScript, if you want to run this on the browser, which also makes it portable. So you have these variety of different uh, choices you can make for the front end and still get uh, good efficiency on the back end. At the same time, there is also the mixed programming paradigm, which means you can have both declarative and imperative programming. And so the idea is you need declarative programming if you want to do optimizations because you need the computation graph to figure out where, how and where to do the optimizations. On the other hand, imperative programming is easier and, uh, you know, easier to write, easier to debug, easier for the uh, programmer to think sequentially. So now, uh, because both the choices are valid, uh, the user can decide what is the best one that suits their needs and which parts of the program would require high optimization and which parts are amenable uh, as imperative programs. To give you the example, if it's uh, architectures, that's where uh, declarative programming uh, can be very effective. But if it's, uh, say, equations or updates such as gradient updates, it's much easier to write in imperative programming. And this can be easily done with MXNet.
0: And uh, so we talked about uh, it being uh, efficient. So we're talking about, a single server with multiple GPU, GPU horse. But uh, my impression is MXNet is also, by design, distributed, can yes. be can be easily deployed in a distributed setting.
1: Yes, and uh, in the benchmarks that I'll show, it's not just about uh, multiple GPUs on the same machine, but also multiple different instances and looking at the scalability, right? So, and it has the parameter server in the back end, allows it to uh be able to seamlessly distribute uh, across uh, either multiple GPUs or multiple machines and that is all uh, separated from the front end so depending on the expertise of the user uh, they can just write the front end and uh, expect a good uh, back end performance without worrying about it
0: so by the way when when you get to the distributed setting you can i can imagine uh if you had many many servers with you know very fast cpus those could be very uh, competitive too right so in terms of by the way what's the uh, is uh, is uh, mxnet also optimized for some of the intel uh, processors
1: yes uh, so there is uh, both the mkl uh, libraries oh, see, as right. well as the cuda cudnn libraries right? both both of them uh, are available uh, in the backend And there is now also an effort called MinPy, which will do hybrid CPU-GPU computations as well as uh, gracefully, you know, go to the CPU module if the GPU ones are unavailable. And so there are efforts to even combine the two.
0: Yeah, because there's this uh, whole thing about GPUs and feeding the beast and making sure you're getting enough uh, usage out of the uh, GPUs, right?
1: Yes, yes. And that's where, uh, you know, all the way it's end to end, right? Like ensuring we have faster data intake and we have efficient uh, partitioning of data into the different GPUs and trying to maintain as much of the communication as possible within the GPUs without going to the CPU. All these strategies are important uh, to get high efficiency.
0: So going back to ease of use, so I'm let's say I'm a data scientist starting to do deep learning. So uh, MXNet supports Python, so I, I imagine I can use Jupyter notebooks, right? Yes. So then, uh, what would are there tools to help me kind of visualize what's going on in the computation graph, where the where the bottlenecks are? And
1: so there is uh, capabilities like TensorBoard that will. Uh, you know, help you uh, see how the training is proceeding and that'll help you uh, give some uh, into you know, visualizations. But I think on that end, we can certainly add more and more will be coming in future.
0: Right, 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 right. And so there's the whole training of uh, these massive models. By the way... Uh, I, I tell people we we were in the age of big data, but now we're in the age of big data plus big model plus big compute, <laughs> as, as as we've been uh, discussing here. So there's the uh, whole training, which in the most bleeding edge research can take weeks, right? So But then there's the inference and execution, and that can be uh, faster, and it doesn't have to be in a high-end machine at that point, right?
1: Yes, I mean, training and hosting need not be in the same machine or even uh, with the same architecture, right? And having the uh, flexibility to have these different modules separately or optimized better for inference versus training are, again, uh, I think areas of uh, uh, interest and we are actively pursuing and there's as well more room for uh, new research there.
0: So give us a sense of the MXNet community. Is it mainly centered around Amazon, CMU, and UW? Because uh, my impression is uh, there's also a, a bunch of people using MXNet in China, for example.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, if you see the recent statistics, the uh, MXNet is uh, growing very fast. Uh, in fact, once we offered it on the deep learning Army, which is the Amazon uh, machine images. Uh, So here, these are pre-configured. So all the licenses are loaded. Everything is set up. So with a few clicks, you can get uh, deep learning going. And since we've done that, uh, there has been a rapid growth. There has been huge interest. Uh, We also have launched a blog on now for amazon ai and we're talking about mxnet a lot and we've gotten a lot of uh, positive free feedback so we've seen huge growth from aws users as well as from the academic community and uh, i expect there'll be uh, you know much more growth in future
0: yeah so what you need to do uh, when you wear your academic hat is to evangelize mxnet to your fellow professors and have them teach their courses <laughs>
1: absolutely and aws also supports programs both for research and education there are aws credits offered for research projects as well as aws educate for uh, you know students uh, y- using aws uh, during their courses and we uh, have plans to integrate that with mxnet we've been actively talking about it in the academic community and even some of the more Theoretical facing communities have been going and talking with them. And traditionally, because there was such a high barrier towards, you know, taking the theory to practice. Right. There was no further uh, seamless movement between theory and practice. But now by showing how easy it is to deploy algorithms and get them running, the hope is we can uh, make innovation grow faster faster. And MXNet and AWS can play a big role in that.
0: By the way, uh, the one of the things that uh, is still a big, big part of this equation, of course, is big data. And uh, because a lot of these, especially these deep uh, learning models, require a lot of data. And one of the things I think that uh, makes it compelling for developers to use uh, services like AWS is they come with these services where the models are pre-trained already, right?
1: Yes, yes. uh, We uh, will be offering uh, a number of models. We already have some models that uh, are available on AWS. And at the same time, there is a whole ecosystem of services, right? Starting from S3 for storage to Kinesis, if you have streaming data and a whole array of database uh, services, uh, code deploy and other uh, coding tools. This makes it a much richer experience than if they were to do it on-premises.
0: Yeah, and also, also the other thing, to their are They may not have the data.
1: Yes. They uh, are get... also making a lot of data available on S3. And uh, so it's more seamless for them to uh, use it in their uh, machine learning uh, rather than trying to find it from various different sources whenever we are allowed to do that.
0: So it seems like uh, this whole deep learning, uh, the uh, popularity of deep learning has, again, uh, given rise to, you know, big data, you've got this MIG model, and then now you have big compute. So it's really kind of uh, makes the cloud really, really a compelling choice for many, many companies.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, And uh, time and again, we've seen that when companies move to the cloud, uh, there is a, a huge amount of cost savings uh, because the Amazon has, uh, and AWS has the expertise in uh, being able to achieve economies of scale and to provide uh, new services very rapidly and provide all the support that's needed uh, to the customer. And now with uh, big data and large models in place, this will become all the more important.
0: Um, yeah, and then obviously uh, the combination of big data and big models equals big compute. And as, you, as we were laughing about earlier, some of these Amazon, some of these instances are basically supercomputers.
1: Absolutely. And uh, that's what I'm hoping now we can really uh, spur innovation and uh, see what the limits uh, are with the current deep learning algorithms and what we can achieve by scaling up with no limits.
0: So, when we last talked, which was about two years ago on this podcast uh, 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 we talked about tensors, which is uh your area of re- one of your areas of research as a professor so are there any recent developments in the world of tensors at that time we were talking about um tensor decomposition methods and uh, and uh, the use of uh, tensor methods to redo some of these uh Popular machine learning models because they're embarrassingly parallel. So any news in the world from the world of tensors?
1: Absolutely. Uh, there's been a lot of exciting developments uh, in that space as well as connections to deep learning that make them uh, very compelling. On one hand, if you think about the tensor operations, you know what we call tensor contractions or extensions of matrix products. And if you look into deep learning computations, they involve tensor contractions. And uh, so it becomes very pertinent to ask, can you go beyond the usual matrix computations and be able to efficiently parallelize it along different hardware architectures? For instance, uh, if you think about BLAS operations, the level one BLAS is uh, just scalar, scalar operation, right? But if you go to level two, that's... uh, a matrix vector operation and if you go to level three that's matrix matrix operations and by going to a higher level blast you're able to block operations together and get better efficiency and now if you go to a tensor which are extensions of the matrices you need higher level blast operations and in one of the recent works what we did was define such extensions for blast we in fact this is added to KUBLAS 8.0. One of the NVIDIA researchers, Chris Zekka, was a co-author on this work. And to me, that's a, an exciting area to ask how we can uh, you know, do hardware optimizations for various tensor operations and how that would improve efficiency of deep learning and other machine learning algorithms.
0: At a high level, Anima, why would, uh, why would you expect this to improve efficiency?
1: Because we can block operations much more efficiently than uh, the matrix uh, methods currently do, right? So if the, than what, say, Blast3 does, you can block them even more efficiently.
0: But then the, for, for the listeners out there, the, at the end of the day, once NVIDIA and Intel and, and Amazon and all these companies implement these, you just reap the benefits.
1: Yes. And uh, then you can think of tensors, right, expressing tensors uh, rather than breaking them into matrices. So it becomes a lot easier uh, to program multi-dimensional objects. Uh, You know, if you have data that's multiple different attributes or you want to process, uh, say, multiple channels or multiple modalities, you can express them more more easily without worrying about efficiency because that's uh, guaranteed to you
0: cool so so what's the timeline for for this to for people to start seeing this in the in the world
1: right so there are now uh, we have uh, ongoing efforts to integrate more of tensors into MXNet. and once that's done there'll be a clean uh, front end uh, implementation of tensors right whereas on the back end we would be doing a lot of optimizations and so they can reap the benefits
0: and uh, do you expect uh, developers to be able to transition over to tensors, tensors and tensor notation easily?
1: And that's uh, that's what we want to ensure, to make it easy enough for uh, uh, developers and uh, algorithm thinkers to think in terms of tensors. And uh, when we have big data, it's not just big, it's multidimensional. So that will be the natural language uh, to think of when it comes to big data and machine learning. That's you,
0: right? Right, right, right. So the other thing that you worked on in the past is these uh, high-dimensional probabilistic graphical models, because mm-hmm. to in many ways people I think talk only about deep learning, but there's actually a lot of good research in probabilistic machine learning too, right?
1: Absolutely, and uh, you know, especially when uh, we are in the small data regime, which is unlike some of these deep learning systems then it becomes important to add more domain-specific constraints. And parametric models uh, tend to do better in that regime because uh, there is less we are asking from them to learn from data. On the other hand, when we have lots of data, removing the constraints and adding flexibility will improve performance. So there are a whole wide range of uh, requirements based on the availability of data, based on Uh, the kind of tasks we want uh, uh, the frameworks to do. And uh, there are frameworks where purely, you know, parametric probabilistic approaches will have a role. But on the other hand, I think a richer picture and a more interesting picture that I see is combining the two effects, uh, adding uncertainty into deep learning systems, right, by uh, having uh, layers uh, that, can express probabilistic models and uncertainties is certainly an area where we are seeing rich growth. And also asking if um, tensor methods can come in in terms of uh, uh, doing pooling across multiple modalities. So one uh, uh, example is visual question and answering. So you have image data, you have text data, and maybe you have other modalities such as speech, and you want to do, say, question and answering, or you want to do recognition across these modalities, that's where uh, tensor structures can come in to express such uh, rich modalities. And you can then express uh, probabilistic models and ask how to train over them. But at the same time, combining the non-parametric nature and uh, the ability to obtain rich embeddings from deep learning.
0: Yeah, well, sometimes I get the sense, just reading the deep learning literature, that it just requires so much data and in many ways they don't it's unclear why it's working it seems like in some level it's just doing memorization but then there's as you point out there's these other uh, researchers who are trying to combine deep learning with these other methods right so i'm not sure if you are familiar with the work for example of Josh Tannenbaum out in MIT and yeah they're tr- they're trying to figure out how do we infuse deep learning with some of the characteristics of the way humans think, for example, right? So.
1: And it's a very challenging, uh, you know, there have been uh, recent investigations into asking what exactly is deep learning, learning, right? And uh, it's uh, memorization, I think is one aspect, but it's very clear that it's memorizing uh, in a modular and possibly an intelligent manner. So it's able to generalize uh, to new examples because of the way it's uh, memorizing into multiple layers and having a hierarchy uh, that organizes the memorization. I think that plays a big role. And how uncertainty can further uh, make them, say, more intelligent or uh, make them generalize better is uh, an exciting uh, and an open question.
0: No, I like what you said earlier about infusing it with some domain knowledge somehow right just like just like humans have some notion of intuition yes yeah
1: and the yeah. uh, you know expressing them as priors is i think a more uh, flexible mechanism to do rather than as a constraint because if the constraint is wrong because yeah. all yeah. anywhere approximations we've made about uh, the real world and the data collection is often quite messy and uh does not satisfy the constraints and that's where the classical probabilistic modeling uh, would result in you know, low performance so now the question is then what are the right priors and how do we obtain them and that's uh, and how do we specialize it to each domain and that's that's a hard question
0: yeah and then in the unsupervised realm right so when you're looking at some of these generative models they seem to generate good images, but it's unclear uh, how to measure what how good they are. <laughs> <Yes. And laughs> you basically just have to look at the image and say, oh, this looks reasonable. Yeah.
1: And that's the classical problem with unsupervised learning, right? So how do you evaluate it? I mean, is it a likelihood? But then if it's not a likelihood-based framework, then you don't even have that. And if you tie it to a downstream task, then it's always better to do end to end training. And then it's not clear what's, uh, you know, that's not separating unsupervised learning from the task anymore. And this is always the tricky question that, you know, there's a lot of hypothesis that humans tend to do unsupervised learning, uh, especially as children. Uh, they tend to gain a lot of uh, common sense knowledge of the world without necessarily being task oriented. But how do we measure that? Uh, learning, uh, unless, uh, or I think one framework is testing it across a range of different tasks rather than one task. And that may be a much better measure of uh, the ability to do unsupervised learning.
0: Yeah, particularly in, uh, I guess, in computer vision, the images, right? So in pixel pixel space, there's not even a natural uh, way to measure distance, really, right? Because you take an image, you shift it a little bit. Uh, it may look far apart in, in pixel space, but they're really almost the same image.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that's uh, precisely what the deep learning system is doing, right? It's like transforming it uh, into a space where uh, the hope is uh, the objects remain invariant uh, to these uh, changes.
0: Right, 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 right. So you're at Amazon right now as a on leave. You're a research scientist, but, uh, you're still an academic at heart and you're, you will go back to academia at some point. So how are you, how are you juggling both? How are you, how are you, uh, staying in touch with, uh, academic research while, uh, trying to push, uh, deep learning and machine learning inside Amazon?
1: To me, uh, the opportunity here at AWS as a principal scientist uh, has been a very timely and an exciting opportunity. I've been given a lot of freedom to explore uh, uh, what are the problems uh, we want to push ahead and we want to make these algorithms available on the AWS cloud for everybody to use. And we'll be pushing ahead with many more such uh, capabilities. And at the same time, we are also innovating, doing research here and asking how we can think about new algorithms, how do we benchmark them uh, with uh, large-scale experiments and uh, talk about it at various conferences and other peer-reviewed venues. So it's definitely a mix of uh, research and development here that uh, excites me. And at the same time, you know, I continue to advise students and continue to push the research agenda. And uh, Amazon is, uh, you know, enabling me to do that and uh, supporting me in that. So I see this as a joint partnership and in future as well. I expect this to continue. I'll be joining Caltech uh, as a brand end out uh, chair. And uh, I'm looking forward to more such engagements between industry and academia.
0: So you mean you're no longer a prisoner of the conference, academic conference calendar? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, you know, well, I have to admit we all are It's in some sense, right? It's fast moving and uh, there are so many exciting uh, projects uh, daily uh, that we learn about. And uh, at the same time, uh, there is a certain aspect of... Uh, you know, having enough time and ensuring that we do very thorough and uh, very deep research before we publish. And that's the model that I try to uh, tell my students to follow.
0: I noticed that you're actually a visiting member of the Simons Institute, right? So you're still staying in touch, at least with the local academic community here in the Bay Area.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I'm giving a talk tomorrow at Stanford. And uh, I was at. Uh, information theory and applications uh, workshop uh, last week. I gave a plenary there, and uh, I also talked about MXNet and uh, aspect of what AWS is doing to help research, and they were very excited. So I really am hoping I can build a stronger bridge between academia and industry.
0: So what, how does your stint so far at Amazon inform how you are going to be teaching machine learning when you go back to Haltech,
1: yeah. So my, uh, I've been learning a lot at AWS. It's a very dynamic and an exciting place. Uh, there are, in addition to the machine learning scientists, there are a lot of uh, experienced uh, AWS engineers. Uh, and uh, to me, the aspect of uh, learning large-scale distributed systems and uh, how to think about optimizations on the cloud and these aspects, you know, have question me in terms of how to have the gap between theory and practice be lowered, right? So if I think of a new framework that in theory will improve the efficiency, I need to be able to test it out at a large scale. So how do we have such experimental test beds that'll make it easier for researchers to work with? And so these are the questions I'd like to really investigate.
0: Oh, so now you're now you're uh, one of these people who are jumping back and forth between systems and uh, machine learning.
1: I think uh, if we have to get these algorithms to work at scale, we need both of those for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the whole lab thing, right?
1: So, yeah, so. <laughs> yes, yes.
0: So Caltech, obviously, uh, well known for research in science. Uh, not uh, basic science but also interdisciplinary science so is that going to change what you're going to be doing once you get there are you going to be working with scientists and other departments or so what's the what's uh your current thinking about caltech
1: absolutely i'm i'm really excited uh about uh the in- interdisciplinary nature of work there i've met uh uh, so many professors from various different departments, you know, chemistry, social sciences, physics, biology. So, so and I already see so many possibilities there. And uh, that's the beauty of machine learning, that it's uh, universal and it's required in all uh, disciplines and understanding the problems and in understanding their constraints and understanding what kind of data is available uh, is very important as we push for uh, new directions in machine learning so i expect to see a lot of rich interaction and that will also that also leading to new research problems
0: you know i wonder if uh, you should introduce a entry level course at caltech about the fundamentals of cloud computing
1: Yes. And uh, there are, you know, researchers and professors uh, already thinking there about cloud computing. Uh, For instance, Adam Wehrman teaches the networks course there, and he also talks about large-scale systems and the cloud. And uh, currently, the area that I see where I can be adding new course material is in terms of interface between machine learning and systems. And that's an area that I expect a lot of students would be uh, can derive benefits from.
0: So before we close, I'd like to ask you in case you are in the know, what are some of the current things people should expect from MXNet this year? So in other words, what are some at a high level, what the MXNet kind of roadmap for
1: 2017? Yes, uh, uh, we have a lot of exciting things uh, on the plate. As I said, MXNet has been, uh, its origin has been from the university and in terms of uh, documentation, tutorials uh, and other learning material, we have been uh, uh, updating and overhauling it and adding a whole lot of new material and building this ecosystem where new students, researchers, programmers can plug into it and contribute further. And I think that community building, uh, we want to continue at a full scale and uh, add more capabilities. In terms of features, uh, you know, we are uh, now uh, enabling it to do much more than deep learning. So we are going to soon add uh, sparse support, tensor support, and by making it a platform for more general machine learning, we can now enable researchers uh, working on different aspects of machine learning, whether it's deep learning or classical machine learning to come together and ask how we can innovate and think about new algorithms.
0: So uh, one of the kind of hip new features for these uh, deep learning frameworks is uh, dynamic computation graphs. So pioneered by Chainer, PyTorch, and then I think TensorFlow to some extent now supports it. So is MXNet going to move in that direction too?
1: So there are uh, certainly um, You know, ideas uh, related to that. And we have overhauled uh, uh, the backend engine right now. It's called the NNVM uh, now. And yeah, certainly areas where we can improve the backend and make it more efficient, our priority. And
0: and also, I as we close, I want to tell the listeners out there, Anima told about, uh, uh, talked about MXNet tutorials and community. And uh, I just want to put a plug out there that I'm always nagging Anima to teach tutorials and give talks at the many, many conferences that I organize. So be on the watch and I'll make sure I link to those in the post accompanying this episode. So thank you, Anima.
1: Thank you, Ben.
0: For the latest on big data, data science, and AI, including uh, the many interesting deep learning frameworks, you can attend our events. There's two of them, Strata plus Hadoop World, which is at strataconf.com, and the O'Reilly AI Conference, which is at oreillyaicon.com. You can follow Anima on Twitter, at Anima Anand Kumar, or at Apache MXNet. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.